You know what? Everyone is an expert. Welcome to the show. This is the Everyone an Expert show with Brett Rawson. I am your host, Brett Rawson. Well, thank you. Uh, my friend Sean Reyes is here today, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're pleased to have him on. And uh, Sean, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, I'm honored to be with you, bro. Well, yeah, we, uh, you know, I, I was thinking back, when is the first time I laid eyes on Sean Reyes? And <laughs> it's before you probably, you, you wouldn't have an awareness of this. I was um, downtown. I was working uh, for an attorney, a, a, a trial lawyer downtown that a lot of people know and happened to be at lunch and i'm with a group of friends um crowded restaurant and in walks sean reyes and somebody leans over and says that guy's gonna be attorney general (laughs) i said really (laughs) and this was this was uh kind of in the middle of that first run yeah yeah. um so even before the special election this was way you know way back you're going you're going way back way back (laughs) and and uh and i didn't know you at the time but i and so in that little lunch meeting i you know i heard this and that and oh yeah he's from you know he's from hawaii and la and you know what's he doing here and you know i kind of got the gouge on you a little bit but i think a lot of people they don't know perhaps your background um where you came from where you started and why in the heck did you become a lawyer and end up in the grand old state of Utah? No, it's thank you for asking. Um, yeah, sometimes with so many different uh, political issues and policy issues, we don't get a chance to to talk about uh, my heritage, of which I'm very proud. Uh, and, and it really starts with uh, one of my heroes, um, who I lost this year, my father, um, Buddy Reyes, who uh, has an incredible story that I'd, someday I'd like to turn into a, a movie um, but he's from the Philippines. He was born and raised there. His uncle had served as president of the Philippines, uh, Ramon Magsaysay. My dad, at a, at a young age, was a talented musician, artist. He was actually the personal artist for the Pope, the Holy Father there, wow. paintings in the Vatican as a young man in his early 20s. He sounded so much like Elvis Presley back home in the Philippines that he uh, had his own records and opened for Bob Hope on tour, the USO tours, had his own radio shows, TV shows, and he was doing really, really, really well. Uh, but a young, ambitious senator uh, rose to power, and my dad uh, knew of, of him and uh, opposed him. And then the senator became president of the Philippines, and my dad continued his opposition, and uh, it, things didn't go well. Mm. This particular president um, uh, declared martial law in the Philippines and became a dictator, uh, Ferdinand Marcos. Yeah, I remember. My dad, uh, being outspoken, used whatever celebrity that he had, uh, you know, acquired and attained, uh, a minor celebrity at best. But um, they, they, uh, the, the strong arm thugs uh, of the president came and said, look, just, you know, shut up. You've got it made in the shade. Like, we don't want to kill the, the, the nephew of the former president. This is, you're one of us. You're, you're part of the aristocracy, the elite. You, you've been so successful. You've bought three homes for your 10 brothers and sisters and your parents. Mm. Just shut up and, yeah. and you'll be fine. And he couldn't. Uh, he was just a fighter and a warrior and he always spoke his mind and stood up for what he um, thought was the, the right values and principles. And so his, his aunt in the middle of the night in the 1967 had to evacuate him out um, and uh, send him one way 
to Los Angeles, California. I mean, he went, mm. as he tells it, he, he asks her, Hey, I, I don't mind going to Cali cause I've always wanted to play, you know, music in Hollywood, but like, when do I come back? And she said, son, you, you never come back. Oh, well, wow. Ferdinand Marcos is the present. He'll yeah. kill you. He, he'll probably kill you in Los Angeles, but we have a better chance mm-hmm. of protecting you. So you don't have time to say goodbye to your girlfriend or your bandmates or your business partners, hug your mom and dad and kiss your brothers and sisters goodbye. And if you can imagine as a young man, um, you know, in his uh, mid-20s, just heading to a place he had never been with no money, not knowing anything, he worked his tail off. Um, was taking advantage of a lot because of, of, of his background and his, uh, he came legally, um, his aunt assured that, but while he was here, you know, no one wanted to hire him. So day laborer, uh, homeless for a while, mm. but established himself. He actually, because we just celebrated Reverend King's birthday, I, yeah. I want to bring this up. He, he got to stay in the country permanently because of a very fortuitous event, um, he entered an art contest and didn't actually get to finish uh, the painting. Uh, sadly, Reverend King was slain, I think, in 1968. So 1969 yeah. now, Coretta Scott King, his spouse, hosts uh, the first annual National Martin Luther King Art Contest. My dad doesn't have paints. He doesn't have a canvas. He takes the cupboard doors off of the ramshackle kitchen cupboard, unscrews it, um, unhinges it, uh starts to, uh, with borrowed crusty paints, do a portrait of Reverend King. And he's there living with 10 other guys and, uh, you know, day laborers in this, again, um, crummy apartment. He doesn't get to turn it in because he gets picked up with all of the other guys who are there in the house. They're staying with like nine Mexican guys who are mm-hmm. awesome. He loves, they're all working hard jobs. And the INS, uh, at the time, they picked me. He said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm legal. Uh, well, we don't know who you are. He said, we're going to deport you to Mexico. He said, yeah. I'm not Mexican. Oh, They're boy. Like, it doesn't matter. You're short. You're brown. Your last name's Reyes. You'll be fine down there. And he said, wait, wait a minute. No, I, well, where are you from? The Philippines. Well, we'll send you back to Manila. I'll get killed. If, I mean, yeah, well, what are we going to do with you? And he said, you know, call my aunt, the, 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 the first lady. And they said, no, we'll, we'll just leave you in this detention cell. So he's there um, hanging out for weeks. And little does he know that the painting that he had not even finished, his friend, a blind, like 80-year-old neighbor of his, walked around L.A. until he found a place to turn it in. It was actually a, a librarian on a bus. If you can imagine all of these just like sort of miraculous strands that that had the, the confluence of events she says i think you can turn it in at my branch they get it in just in the nick of time it wins for los angeles and oh. california and goes on to win for the entire united states oh my goodness and Coretta scott king comes down to recognize and honor the winner of the art contest and, <laughs> and his friend said no he's in like he's with the in a detention facility and they're like what so they go down there and they ask the you know essentially the jailers why is he in there? Well, we can't determine like he's kind of a refugee, but uh, we don't really have asylum laws in the United States. They hadn't, they don't, they didn't actually come into play until like 1969, 70. Wow. So pops is in there. Like, is he dangerous? This is uh, yeah. Coretta Scott King's lawyers. Incredible. Like, no, he's singing to us. He's helping us cook. Like, he's, he's great. <laughs> 
And my dad's also thinking, hey, you know, I've been homeless before. This isn't a totally bad Yeah, this gig. might be better. You know, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm hanging out. It's warm. It's, um, And they say, congratulations. You're the winner of the Martin Luther King art contest. We'll fly you oh, out to Atlanta, Georgia. So he goes out to Georgia, sitting between two United States senators, and they say, buddy, don't you love this country? And he says, I, I do. This is incredible. I mean, America is awesome except for the one ins agent that's sitting in the front row (laughs) who follows me everywhere he's trying to send me back to the philippines could you help me with that and these senators worked um on his behalf they got him established he got some prize money from mrs king who remained a family friend my dad uh because of that growing up i heard you know all the great stories about um reverend king and his fight for for justice and equality and my dad um from that start, established a number of small businesses and was able to work uh, to help get us out of a, a tougher place in L.A. Uh, where I was yeah. born. My mom was a school teacher and career educator. And so combined together, they were able to get us uh, into a little more um, middle class neighborhood. But but always just my dad was my hero and the, yeah. the things that he did I, in my entire career. I'll never do what what he did You know, before he was even the age of 30. He, when I was growing up, John Wayne, Gene Autry, they would come to our house because my dad <laughs> would, would paint them. Yeah. He did movies in Hollywood. When he was back in the Philippines, he was a line producer for MGM Studios. Just talked his way onto the set. He'd never had any experience. Sure. Taught himself. The, it, just that that kind of guy. And um, That's a special kind of guy. And so when you, out, you talk about my, you know, what things inspired yeah. me and my heritage. Right. The integrity that he had the stories about his uncle, the president of the Philippines, who who eradicated the graft and corruption that had beset a lot of government uh, positions and officials. And he was a man of the people, you know, kind of t- on Time magazine cover. Just And so I always heard these stories. And then the, the kind of that final piece was my dad, because he was in the entertainment industry and a small business owner, he would get sued all the time. Not because he'd done wow. anything wrong, but you know well yeah. as a lawyer that when people have the law on their side and a lot of resources, they have a lot yep. of them have no compunctions about taking advantage of business partners. And so he was constantly, because he trusted a lot of people and wanted to see the best, getting taken advantage of. And I think the seeds of wanting to be able to stand up and defend people like my father, mm-hmm. including my father, were, were planted when I was a, a young man watching his travails and struggles and the frustration where he said, this country is so amazing, but but clearly some of us, there's there's opportunity everywhere, but if you have the law on your side, it really levels the playing field. And so yeah. he encouraged me, um, and my mom did as an educator, and, and so I, I asserted myself, studied hard, played a lot of sports too, figured if I didn't get an academic scholarship, I could get an athletic one or vice versa, got recruited by a number of schools, but decided to come to BYU, nice. young university here Go in Cougs. Provo. Go Cougs. <laughs> I had the shortest athletic career in the history of the, the Cougar Athletic Department, but ended up um, with something much, much better. Uh, what years were wife. you there? I was there 89, my freshman year. Okay. Left from 1990 to 92 to serve a mission for the mm-hmm. Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. 
all of my you know cousins were going exotic faraway places right. and uh, i got my mission call which is a big deal for a young you know uh latter-day saint uh, young man and it said chicago and i was like Man, wow that didn't i don't remember that in japan or <laughs> no chicago illinois very exotic place but because yeah. my grandmother had taught me a lot of spanish growing up i think mm-hmm. they thought well we'll utilize his spanish language capabilities mm-hmm. and they sent me to the barrios of chicago for two wow. years amazing taught me a lot about life and myself and i I think probably the best preparation for running for office you get a thousand doors slammed in your face people saying all sorts of things that i won't repeat uh here on the podcast Um, and and (laughs) yeah if i if i'd only knocked on more doors i'm sure i would have been better (laughs) where where were you (laughs) man uh, yeah so a lot of people don't know i ran against you in a special election before the uh the central committee of the uh, gop nothing like creating a relationship it was great i mean yeah it was uh you know i like i said i'd I'd heard of you i think i'd met you um but didn't really get to know you until that campaign and um was that what was that uh november december of 2013 i think and uh we had a an attorney general that stepped down and it created an opening and the governor was going to pick out of three and so there was a little campaign there was a scrum though I, at one point there were like 17 people yeah who there were a lot uh, yeah there were a few and then i think it it, it kind of, went kind of down, down to eight the, yeah. and uh i i came in right middle of the pack i think uh uh general tarbot beat me by like two votes uh, yeah, you know right. and again i might add uh brett not for any lack of qualification or anything else you were a, a stellar candidate and it was just oh such it was a, fun such a scrum it was but i i never experienced anything like that and uh, got to drive around to every county in utah and meet a lot of interesting and, and fantastic yeah are there 29 wow <laughs> it was a lot i think i made it to 28 sorry daggett sorry daggett county i didn't get Rich there county sometimes you, you hit a two for one yeah no yeah offense, but but that. got to got to know you on the uh on the campaign trail there uh over those weeks and uh you know, been friends ever since. And uh, of course, uh, you, you know me also as uh, general counsel of the Utah Fraternal Order Police, uh, which has endorsed you. Yeah, and, and you ran on a lot of platforms which were impressive about um, empowering law enforcement, but also holding them accountable. And I think you've done yeah. a great job. Well, thank you. Yeah, we uh, we try hard. And, and uh, you know, it's been it's been a tough time uh, for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these years, um, even before 2015, I mean, I think of Ferguson, but even before that, things have been changing. And, you know, now we find ourselves, uh, it's inauguration day, 2021, right. um, you know, uh, Trump was, uh, in many ways good for law enforcement. You know, we felt in many ways that, uh, backup had arrived, uh, back in 2016. And I know, you know, uh, between 60 and 70% of the people in Utah, uh, voted for him. I voted for him a couple of times. Uh, and now we have a new administration and very pleased that, uh, the new administration has already reached out to the Fraternal Order Police, right. but yeah. we have we have questions on you know the future uh, for law enforcement. It's been a very difficult ten months during this pandemic, the riots, oh, yeah. uh, culminating with what happened on uh, January sixth and the loss of a Capitol police officer. Right. We are having a hard time finding people that want to do this job, and and that is not. The way it's been, you know, over my time in law enforcement and certainly as a a lawyer representing uh, police officers in the beginning, there were hundreds of applicants for every single position. Now, you know, we're poaching each other's agencies in order to get the best and the brightest to come in to uh, to back us up. So what would you say to that 
21 year old who is considering going off to police academy. Yeah, it's interesting because when you and I grew up, we 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 thought about, you know, we we uh, at least for me, the backyard was hitting a, you know, a ninth inning game-winning home run or being a police officer and chasing down the bad guys. It was something that I I think uh, a lot of us aspired to. Um it's a but I what I would tell a 21-year-old right now is don't don't buy into um, other people's characterizations. Um, be earnest. Go talk to some law enforcement professionals because it's an absolutely noble profession. And there are lots of different facets. I think some people just you know, think about a, a street cop as you know, all of what law enforcement is, but there's so much more at the county, city, state, federal, tribal level. It, it's, it's public service. Um, and like any type of public service, there are people who um, who will abuse power and authority. There are people who shouldn't wear the badge, but by and large, and, and I know because I get to work with some of the greatest public servants, um, some of them are teachers, many of them are in law enforcement, and other first responders too, they're dedicated they're thoughtful. They're real people who have real feelings and real families that pray for them just like I do every single night. I, you, you know this, but maybe your listeners won't, is that state attorney general, because each state's a little bit different, I have charge for um, about 50 full-time special agents, uh, investigators, and they do some very complex specialized cases. But we are a part of the law enforcement, the broader law enforcement family, work closely with sheriffs and their deputies, work closely with police chiefs and their police officers, highway patrol and troopers. And we all come together and work together. And I pray for not just my men and women who do some really dangerous, um, high-profile cases, investigating cartels, prosecuting organized crime. I pray for everybody, those troopers who are out on our roads, many of whom who don't come back every year because they're in really dangerous detectives, uh, beat cops. And here's what's really um, disappointing to me is that, first of all, let's be clear, no one has ever in the history of law enforcement gotten into the profession to make money. Right. We, we, we all know yeah. you're not going to get rich being in law enforcement. Um, that hasn't changed. Um, in fact, it's even worse. You make less and with benefits being stripped right. uh, along the way. Law enforcement has always been dangerous. I think everybody, including blue family members, mm-hmm. know the realities. You might get that call, the one that no one wants to ever get. Law enforcement's even more dangerous today than it has been historically on many fronts. You yeah. look at the the weapons, the firepower, and also the lack of sort of authority combined but here's what law enforcement, at least to me, always had. You could hold your head high. There was public trust. There was respect. People loved their cops because they knew they were keeping them safe. And now today, the saddest part of the, the state of affairs is that that has been taken away. That's very troubling. And, and, and look, there are a couple of bad cops. No one hates bad cops worse than good cops. And we would all love to see them flushed out but a few of them have really created a dynamic where some social injustice that has nothing to do with singularly the law enforcement community, but, but there, there's inequities all around right. 
um, our, our society and our communities. But you take that, layer on top of that some really bad actors, and there's this narrative now that law enforcement are all these, again, Neanderthal, jackbooted thugs. They don't think about many of them hold multiple um, degrees and are educated and care very deeply for those in their communities, care for people of all colors and all backgrounds, don't see color when they're making decisions. People don't realize. And, and because of, I think, more than the money, more than the danger, I think it's the lack of public trust, the lack of respect for authority. Yeah, what, what do we do? I mean, when I think back um, you know, to back in the day, and we're, we're about the same age. Yeah. I, I got to BYU at 1990, so yeah, about so time you were heading on your later, mission. Yeah, yeah and um, was also born uh, in Los Angeles County and um, you know, had experiences there uh, with law enforcement. Um, you know, not, not all of them, uh, positive experiences. And so, you know, I came to the practice of law with, with, you know, sort of mixed feelings a little bit about law enforcement. I imagine maybe you had some experiences back in the day, you know, in Los Angeles. Bro, you, you, you hit it on the nose cause you're part Latino, right? Your yep, mom's Puerto mom's Rican. Puerto Rican. Yep. And I grew up, I'm a multiracial and the area in which I grew up, Westchester, Inglewood. Um, wow. I, I was to be honest, afraid of uh, many of the law enforcement. I saw how they treated me, but I saw even more how they treated some of my my friends, uh, many of whom were African-American. And um, I still, to this day, have some of that mm-hmm. um, anxiety that, that, that kind of never leaves you. At the same time, and I'll be upfront about this, my family knew, because there were a lot of thugs around, selling sure. drugs, gangbanging, that yeah. the only thing standing between them and us was my dad's guns. Yep. And he taught us all how to use them. And we were, you know, taught to defend our family with our lives mm-hmm. and law enforcement. And mm-hmm. I was really conflicted because I, I knew intellectually, these are the guys that are there that, that, that are supposed to protect me. But I saw how certain individuals behaved. And I was uh, like you came to law enforcement with a little bit of skepticism, um, but a lot of hope knowing that uh, the you know, the vast majority of officers that I had interacted with were good people. And, and, and part of, you know, the solution, I think, you know, and I've, I've said this uh, on the record before is, you know, recruiting into those communities, getting folks that maybe grew up uh, the way you did or, you know, and I was living mostly on Marine bases, which is a whole nother story. Yeah. And our interaction with law enforcement was MPs, MPs and, right, right. you know, different to a certain extent. But, um, you know, we want, um, minorities uh you know people of color to come into law enforcement that have that very unique and particular experience and uh that they can draw from in in making it better isn't that really the solution as opposed to just protesting or just unfortunately rioting yeah absolutely well first of all rioting's never i mean dr king would be the first one to say that's not the solution protesting there are times to protest and, yeah. and and you know we you and i would both defend uh with everything we have people's right to say and protest what they want even if we disagreed with it and i think you hit on something uh brett really important yes that is that is an integral part of the solution is making sure that the communities uh have really more investment and some of that is seeing people in law enforcement that look like them and understand them culturally and don't come with presuppositions or prejudice um, who, who won't dis- necessarily discriminate 
And so that is, I think, a key element. And we've tried that, and you've seen that in Utah. I've, I've hired on, on my team a number of uh, really talented law enforcement officers from the Pacific Island community. Yeah. And, and I know many of them. They're yeah. great guys, yeah. And, and, and we, we have made overtures to try to bring more diverse community members, African-American law enforcement agents from other agencies outside the state into Utah because that is certainly a key part of the solution. There are other things that we have to do too. And this whole debate about defund the police, Hmm. certainly not dismantle the police because anybody who thinks about it for a minute knows that there is absolutely a place where law enforcement has to be. Now, can you, can you amplify what law enforcement does with, for instance, mental health, behavioral health experts? I think absolutely we've done that in Utah, created mobile crisis units where we send out officers with them. But what happens when an addict or what happens in a domestic violence situation when one of these experts or specialists, things turn deadly quickly and then you need law enforcement. Um, law enforcement officers didn't sign up to be um, marriage counselors. Right. The majority of them would prefer not to, but society has largely ignored mental health problems, has largely ignored behavioral health issues, and has kind of just foisted it on. Law enforcement's the most convenient because, well, let's pick them up and take them to jail. And if you sit down with the majority of officers, they would say, we're not equipped to do this. We didn't. We don't want to do this. We're being told to do this. We would rather not sure. have to interface with the public like that. And so in many ways, law enforcement has had to suffer the consequences of dealing with the outcome of decisions that politically and otherwise we've been, I would say, too um, afraid or unwilling to, to address suicide, depression. I mean, you can go down homelessness, all of these things. And so the, the, the answer for me was never defund law enforcement. I think I would stand, other law enforcement leaders like you would stand with our community members and say, if you want more community, community involvement, we'll stand with you. More PAL programs, more after-school programs, more resources. We agree with all of that. Don't take money away from law enforcement. Why don't we find, and I, I recognize money doesn't grow on trees, but let's find a whole lot of other programs to pull those from and let's do both things. Let's amplify those community involvement programs so the communities truly have a voice and there's more accountability for law enforcement and transparency. But let's also put more money towards training law enforcement. And mm-hmm. you can't do that if you're defunding them. Right. Even Bernie Sanders said, I think it's the only time recently I heard Bernie Sanders and President Trump agree on something. <laughs> you have to fund if you want the highest quality and caliber of professional representing law enforcement, which is what our communities and particularly communities of color claim that they want you actually have to get more training and so you guys have been incredible um for utah uh, at fop helping us create the the training programs that we have i'm not sure if your listeners would even know but we have um we've been held up as a model since 2014 in the aftermath of ferguson yep. um, with our violence de-escalation mm-hmm. trainings that we do including with a virtual reality simulator where we send off oh it's a great through. simulator i've been through it yeah. And, and you know, the stock system alone is incredible. And our partners, Virtra, I want to be clear, I'm not endorsing, um, like, uh, you know, I'm not here. I don't make anything from Virtra. There are other vendors, Milo and others, but Virtra is our, is our partner. Right. And on top of their incredible system, we've layered a curriculum of how to de-escalate 
violence, how to understand cultural signals. For instance, we, we right now are creating with school resource officers and FOP a program to help officers interact with kids on the spectrum. Why? Because if they misunderstand that an autistic child who's repeating back what the officer is saying, if they misinterpret that as belligerence, they may take a much different approach sure. than yep. if they understand that that's a natural response. And so with the virtual reality simulator, we're putting officers through these scenarios along with advocates from the community, parents of autistic children and mm. families. It's such a powerful dynamic. It is. It's a great training. I, I had uh, the, the privilege of going through it with uh, a Utah agency and, and uh, I was mesmerized by the technology and um, you know the, the ability to encounter things that you don't want to see for the first time on the street. Oh, no, that's right. And then with the repetitions, our, our hope is that the officers never have to deal with a school shooting. But if they are in that situation, for instance, um, they have hundreds of, of repetitions and chances to make mistakes in the virtual world. Right. We can run it back. We can talk about it. We can, and, and the cool thing for us in our office is we have prosecutors who are there along with law enforcement to help them understand the constitutional requirements, the guidelines. Yeah. And so I think people don't realize how much law enforcement actually cares, how much time they put into mm-hmm. training and into community involvement. Um, I've got so many of our officers speaking at high schools, elementary schools. I know FOP does because we care. Absolutely. And those are our communities too. Now, I heard something, uh, Sean, uh, and, and maybe I had just forgotten this, um, but I wanted you to confirm this for me. Are you, you're into martial arts, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I, my dad was a real martial artist. Uh-huh. So he trained even with the likes of Bruce Lee. Wow. Sifu, Sensei Lee. Yeah. Um, had a, 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 a training partner named Danny Nasanto, who's a, a legend, Hall of Fame, uh, Kali Eskrima master from the Philippines. And he trained Bruce who had, you know, developed his from Wing Chun into his JKD style. And so my dad was part of that whole coming up. As a kid, I, to be honest, when you're an Asian um, from an immigrant <laughs> family, the last thing you want to be known for is being the karate kid, right? Sure. Like the, the martial arts guy. There's so many stereotypes. But it's so cool. It is, I think right? it's great. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciated it later, but I was trying to yeah. play football, basketball, anything that would get me more integrated. But dad's philosophy, and it wasn't just about the, you know, what you can do on a mat or in a tournament. It was a, a mindset. And so, yeah, that at BYU, I trained with uh, Pedro Sauer wow. uh, before UFC was even around. A lot of the pioneers of MMA. And in, 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 so right now, I, I know many of the fighters. Uh, I, I try to keep in touch. I try to not bother Dana White. The guy's incredible. But we've, we, I just was on a panel with him recently. In, in Nevada. So we're going to watch the Connor fight this. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Wouldn't miss it. No, I'm, I'm mesmerized by that stuff. I, you know, I remember uh, one of the first uh, books that I went out and bought with my own money was uh, Bruce Lee's, uh, the yeah. Tao of JKD yeah. and uh, you know, read it and looked at the diagrams and you know, fascinating. It, it was fascinating. And I, you know, I wish I would have trained harder, but <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was, uh, something that i aspire to so when i heard that about you i'm like i'm gonna ask him i, I want to oh, know what kind of a well, martial see, artist he is that, some, some people are lovers and others are fighters and look with that with that voice hey, of baby yours i'm and both the good luck i know i'm teasing you you're a tough you're a tough dude but, um 
I'll tell you where it came in handy the most, Brett, because you got you've been a really um, you you all have been champions of this, and we may not have time to get too much into it, but you know, with a with a group, um, I work with many organizations around the world. One that started here in Utah called Operation Underground Railroad, where yeah. we pose as confidential informants. We actually go into different countries under the auspices of that country's laws. We mm-hmm. work with their their agencies. But we've ended up in some pretty, I'll, I'll say, uh, sticky situations. Oh, I can imagine. Troubling yeah. ones. Or one comes to mind, you know, they're like, uh, you don't want to get caught because, the, did you see the Bengal tigers out front? We're like, yeah, they're hard to miss. You know, full-grown <laughs> tigers in cages. Like, yeah, those weren't um, animal bones. Those are human bones. So you, you all of a sudden, those martial arts, like instincts and skills, uh, we would train a lot with, uh, we have a guy named Joe Gleed here locally who's a, a master um, uh, at Israeli uh, martial arts. Wow. And he is, he is uh, awesome. And it was great to have him and then to also train because those situations. Oh, like, they can in, in a turn second, on a dime. Yeah. Wow. You're in a foreign country mm-hmm. and really seedy, you know, part of town trying to rescue girls and women out of yeah. the hum- hell holes of uh, human trafficking. Mm. Um, so yeah, it no, was, it's, it's, it's incredible. Well, I'm glad we were able to, uh, to confirm that you, yeah. you are a martial artist. And, uh, well, and I would yeah. love to, uh, Enough learn to more about it. Krav Maga. We'll, we'll see you in the gym. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was a boxer till I was 12. Oh, is that, that right? Yeah, I, I better run many, away from you then. Too many yeah. head hits. <laughs> Although I didn't like to see uh, iron Mike back out. Uh, yeah, that was, that was fantastic to see him. You know, um, he looked good. I, I thought he looked good, you know, we're for 54 or yeah, bring him. Yeah. Um, you know, today's a big day in the country. Yeah. I know you've been yeah. probably asked a lot about this and I, I sure. debated about going down this road a little bit, but you know, you mentioned there's, there's never a, a time to riot. There's never a time for, for violence and yeah, having, not. having worked, um, personally on Capitol Hill, you know, as a 20 something, you know, um, starting my professional career, I worked for uh, Bob Bennett and, um, I had an amazing experience there. And so it was really hard for me to be honest with you, to see what was happening on January 6th. Um, and here we are, you know, they've, uh, sworn in a new administration. Right. What does the future hold for America, for American politics? Can we close the divide? I mean, Joe said some pretty things, uh, today on the, uh, on the TV as, as he gave his speech, can he live up to it? Yeah, great. There's a lot to unpack in there. First of all, I forgot that you worked for Senator Bennett. He was a close friend. When I was running first, before anybody had even heard who I was, he signed his name and was my first endorsement, did a commercial, which was a very brave political thing at the time because I was certainly not uh, the favorite, but he was just that kind of a man. Uh, We had grown up um, when we moved out to the San Fernando Valley. He was uh, close by there and he and his his family. um, And so he was somebody that I always um, admired a great deal. It was horrific what happened there. Yeah. Um, not just for people like you and I who've spent a lot of time there um, in D.C. Uh, working on important issues, but for all of America and for the world to see violence is like that and, and, and lawlessness. I've been calling that out all summer long Yeah, in, in other contexts and saying it's wrong and, you know, it'd be absolutely... Um, hypocritical right to call it i think many of us in the law enforcement community immediately posted and prayed for the safety of our brothers and sisters there who were trying to protect yeah the capital at the same time one thing that i i, I want to you know this this cancel culture or this uh tendency to rush to judgment look a, a lot of the people who were there 
had nothing to do with sure. that. We're not trying to foment sedition and the overthrow of the government. Right. They were, I think, people of, of, of good faith who were upset and still are upset and wanted to vent and voice their frustrations. Just like those who uh, were upset when um, George Floyd was murdered and, and killed and vented their frustrations in a peaceful way, I wouldn't hold them accountable for what then happened from right. some people who took the law into their own hands, raided, looted, burned. And I think we we ought to responsibly try to, to separate those those people from... from um, going forward uh, with the, you know, the inauguration, I worked with the Obama administration. I was even appointed by the Obama administration to work on uh, important issues for the Latino community. We, we, we worked in a bipartisan way just recently to get a, a bill passed and part of the omnibus budget for a national museum of the American Latino. And that, that really started back in the Bush era and then Obama. And so we worked with President Bush, President Obama, worked with President Trump on a number of things. And, you know, was, I don't think it was a secret. I worked more closely with him sure. um, because I, I he asked me to. I turned down opportunities and offers that they had for me to go back. Well, it's hard to say no to the president of the United States. Well, especially you know? when he's doing things that are important. When yeah. he's funding hundreds of billions of dollars to fight the opioid epidemic, when they're hunt, funding billions of dollars to fight modern-day slavery and human trafficking that no one even talk about before. And I could go on well, and on. Let alone on on. peace in the Middle East. I mean, Peace in the yeah. Middle East. East, and I've, I've worked there in the Middle East. Um, there were lots of issues for veterans, for law enforcement. And so, yeah, I worked closely with him, but I absolutely would work with President Biden if he would be willing and his administration to reach out. Look, America is bigger than any individual president or administration. The American dream is bigger than all of that. I'm an eternal optimist. Um, would I have preferred to continue working with President Trump uh, and building momentum on all these things? Sure. Um, yeah. That didn't work out. Uh, we, but we you had, accept it. You accept we, the. We did. Results. We had our day in court. Yeah. People challenged the, that, and, and I think this is an interesting point to make too. But before we, we we run out of time, I think everybody thought that all of those cases were just about President Trump, and you're either for Trump or against Trump. That's why you support. For a lot of us, those cases were about trying to make sure that we understand going forward the constitutional lines for elections and election laws. For example, in some of those states, the judiciary and the executive branch disregarded the Constitution and the the laws that their legislature had passed. Now, some may say that was the right decision, and that's fine. I wanted the Supreme Court to articulate for us a rule and say, is that only okay during COVID? Are there other situations? Can a governor or attorney general uh, exercise emergency powers and start to just by their own will change all sorts of laws? Mm. Maybe. Maybe not, but right now the answer is still not, or that question is still not answered. Right, and I think the Supreme Court needs to come forward. I understand that they, that, that they're loath to make legal decisions that are surrounded by political, right, um, you know, uh, decisions or impacts. So I, I wasn't entirely surprised that they didn't take that that um, case or uh, many of the cases. But look, going forward, we still need to come together as americans to fight some of the the biggest threats of our time and some of those threats are not um extremism uh abroad 
um, mm-hmm. or or even domestically, there are things of our own making, like the opioid epidemic, that takes yeah. more American lives every single year, deaths by opioids, than we lost as a nation during the entire Vietnam conflict. Just to put in context, I don't think people realize that people die more from opioid deaths and overdoses than breast cancer, than car accidents. And, yeah. and I'm it's not trying horrible. to minimize the how much we should address those issues because they're serious issues and we should be doing breast cancer awareness and safety for automobiles and all of that. But, but opioids, that's something I need everybody, Democrat, Republican, libertarian, unaffiliated. Now there's a new national number associated with yeah. that, right? Tell me, tell us about that. Yeah. Nine, eight, eight. It's really, that emanated from Utah, Brett, that, that was something we tried to do here in Utah in 2014. We couldn't get the legislature behind us back then. Um, certain public officials wouldn't let us use the number here in Utah that, that were mm-hmm. available, three digit numbers. What we wanted to create was an analog to nine one one. I think every American, because it's so ingrained in us growing up knows if you're in a physical emergency, you call 911. Right. Help is on the way. Well, what happens if you're ideating suicide mm. or you're thinking about taking a gun and shooting people to get back at them because you've been bullied or victimized or or you're a victim of human trafficking and you have no place to turn or you're just depressed? Mm-hmm. And I say just because depression can lead to so many other oh, it's yeah. a serious Epidemic. challenge. Yep. All of these all of these different things. There's no resources we kind of do two one one others, but nothing that we, people can just call and know that help is on the way in an emergency in a crisis. And we worked with Senator Hatch at the time, who was mm-hmm. who was in office. Uh, Chris Stewart, great friend of yeah. uh, the military law enforcement congressman, and we got it passed in a jeep pie. Um, former chair of the FCC, now got it designated nine eight eight is the new. 911 for mental behavioral health emergencies. But before you call it, because I want to be clear, <laughs> it's going to take us a few years. Sure. Just like it took five or 10 years right. to get the, the infrastructure set up for 911. This isn't going to turn on immediately. But when we make decisions in politics, not based on what's convenient for tomorrow, mm-hmm. but what's really going to help us for generations. Look, it may take us beyond the Biden administration to get all of the infrastructure, whether that's four years or eight years, all of the infrastructure in place. But once it's in place, imagine the power and the lives that that will be saved, Brett, when law enforcement doesn't have to respond to some of that because on the line, there is a a world-class behavioral health therapist or mental health therapist. Oh, I think it's It's, it's fantastic. It is. It's amazing. It's a resource that uh, is needed. And uh, as I think about, you know, the many cases I've handled as a reserve police officer, I mean, to have that type of resource is phenomenal. Um, what, uh, and, and we'll wrap up with this. What does the future hold for Sean Reyes? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. Uh, hopefully a little more sleep because um, <laughs> 2020 was crazy. Yeah. I felt like 10 years long and, you know, emotionally losing uh, someone like my dad. But I've got, mm. the, I just celebrated 25 years of marriage. I'm turning 50 in a couple of, uh, in a few weeks. Oh, uh, congratulations. I, thank wow. you. Thank you, man. That's yeah. uh, coming for you next year. So I'll, I'll be there to remind <laughs> I'm close, you. close, yeah. But 50 is the new 20, just so you know. <laughs> I hope that's true. Yeah, maybe thirty, but, but well, there, I've got six kids. They're growing up. I, yeah. I, uh, I'm keeping the doors open because I love public service. And if there's an opportunity, I've got four years as AG. I'm mm-hmm. going to maximize that time. I work ninety hour, sometimes hundred hour weeks because I just feel an urgency to try to get as much done as we can. If if other opportunities in politics 
present themselves and I feel like I'm the most qualified to run and I can make a difference, I'm keeping those options open. Good. I've had several federal folks have reached out to me because they're, I think, eyeing runs for president and they want mm-hmm. me to help them along the way. So I, I don't know in what capacity I might do it. On the other side, I would love to go back. I was running a venture fund with my partners before this, had mm-hmm. a law practice, consulting practice, was building businesses, buying and selling them. That still appeals to me. And sure. I see so many global opportunities for Utah to be a crossroads of community and culture and commerce. So I I don't try to push towards a determined outcome. I kind of let God sort of lead me. Uh, you know, I, I, hopefully I'll continue to just exercise faith. And if God feels like um, he may need me down a particular path, hopefully I'll be uh, open to that and courageous enough to, to follow. That's great. Where he, he nudges me. Well, I'm, I'm optimistic for you yeah. and uh, I've got, uh, you know, nothing but, um, you know, great hope for you. And uh, Thanks, brother. whether you're, attorney general or you move on to something bigger and better or different uh we just love to have you around well thanks thanks for what you do for our our men and women in uniform and again a final word uh please to all your list please keep in your prayers our first responders uh their families they're out there right now in covid many of the whom are you know underprotected yeah um interacting they are uh they're uh, heroes amongst us and um and i appreciate you letting me be on here man i hope your millions of subscribers <laughs> and listeners didn't few know. short but oh, okay. we're, we're on our way Give we're on our way. i'm rounding yeah. up just a little maybe by <laughs> this next is, year this is gonna help this interview for sure <laughs> yeah. well thank you sean uh please come back uh, appreciate please so much that you back, took the time to, yeah. to be here with us today and uh right, anyway be, be safe out there all right be ross thanks all right man. thanks all right, man.